Open, outspoken, it's ophthalmology off the grid, an honest look at controversial topics in the field. I'm Blake Williamson. Welcome to another episode of Ophthalmology Off the Grid. In this episode, my co-host, Dr. Netta Nickpour, and I are excited to welcome Bill Trattler for an in-depth conversation about keratoconus. During our chat, we discuss how genetic testing, and specifically the Avigen genetic eye test, is improving how we make refractive decisions. It's improving the utilization of cross-linking to meet refractive goals, and also some of the exciting technologies coming down the pipe, coming up on Off the Grid. Support for this podcast comes from Bryn Mawr Communications. BMC produces a number of informative podcast series spanning a variety of topics in ophthalmology. Discover a new show at itube.net slash podcasts. Welcome to another episode of Ophthalmology Off the Grid. I'm here with my co-host, the one and only Netta Nickpour from Hawaii. Netta, how you doing? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm well. So I'm just finishing afternoon clinic and Netta is just getting done with her morning clinic. So uh, just the perfect time for us to squeeze out an episode of Off the Grid. Um, Thank you so much. I appreciate it. And uh, this is such a cool topic. Um, You and I were talking about, you know, different things and you had some great ideas about things that we should talk about in in Avigen um, uh, with uh, genetic testing for keratoconus and other diseases was is kind of uh, hot on the scene now and I had a recent experience with it and I said man that'd be so cool so we tried to get some we tried to find an expert on keratoconus but we couldn't find an expert so instead <laughs> Netta found a very obscure relatively unknown ophthalmologist can you uh, introduce our guest <laughs> I would love to I'm sure no one has ever heard of him so it's my pleasure to introduce to the world Bill Trattler um, now obviously everybody myself included I think when we think keratoconus we think of Bill and in my mind Bill Trattler is my go-to expert for talking about all things related to keratoconus and um yeah, I mean, I met Bill when I was a resident in Miami at Baskin Palmer, and his dad staffs our emergency room, and and he interacts with us. And I remember sending patients for cross-linking to him before it was even FDA approved um, back when I was a resident. And so I've always kind of had in my mind that he's on the forefront of doing things for patients who have keratoconus. And I first learned about Avigen through him. And I'm really excited that we now have, you know, FDA approval for genetic testing for keratoconus. And I'm sure he has much more experience than you and I combined. I've had a little experience. I know you have too, so we can kind of talk about that. So, yeah, I really wanted to use this as an opportunity to pick Bill's brain about how he's using the genetic test, what he's doing for keratoconus in general these days, and, you know, how Epion is going, what's new for him, um, and what he sees on the horizon for these patients. So, Bill, I am excited to hear your thoughts. You can start in whatever order you want, but maybe we can start talking about Avigen first and how that's fit into your practice. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Blake. Thank you, Dad, for, for inviting me to be here. It's so fun to uh, be here with you both. And obviously, keratoconus is a fun topic to talk about. Obviously, there are many fantastic experts in keratoconus around the world. So I do my part, but I think we all learn from each other. So I've been excited. You know, when Avigen came on board, I was like, wow, genetic testing, is that going to help us? And they've really come together to put together a nice uh, device because it, it explores the, the genes that, that are increased risk for keratoconus and give an overall score because patients could have some genes that are high risk and some genes that are moderate risk and some that are lower risk. 
they come with a risk score that we can help at least use to guide us on understanding the patient's risk for keratoconus. Uh, I know I've used it for my patients, but I'm curious if uh, what your experiences are before I jump in on my thoughts, Ned or Blake. Yeah, so I'll give you my anecdote. Um, so I was literally, um, uh, so, so one thing is, you know, I, I think that, that, that I'm, I'm, uh, I need to do a better job of doing this on multiple people for multiple reasons. Uh, I first used, used Avigen, um, you know, I don't know, maybe a month or two ago, um, where I had a patient who was coming in and had a cornea that just looked abnormal, that the, the final D was, was, was off. There was no posterior elevation, but it was just kind of one of those corneas that definitely gave you a pause. It was one of those questions where it wasn't LASIK versus PRK. It was definitely not LASIK, but it was PRK versus do nothing and just monitor this patient and maybe even cross-linking down the road if we get some posterior elevation on the tomography. And, and this patient was super bummed about that. And, and then it kind of hit me. I said, you know, we started talking about eye rubbing. I, I showed her Damien's website, uh, defeatcaridaconus.com. And she literally called our practice back and said, you know, wait a second. Like I rub my eyes all the time. Like she was one of those that like, it, it was like a light bulb went off. You know, we all have this keratoconus patient. It's like, no, I never rub my eyes. And you know, they do. But she was like, no, that's what I do. Um, and she was like, Dr. Blake, I just feel like if I stopped rubbing my eyes, I really feel like I could get PRK. And she was like a minus four, or minus five. She, she really wanted this done. And so I said, you know what, there's, she was like, if there's any way we could figure out if I'm at risk. I said, well, actually, it's funny you say that there is this thing. So it was like the patient was suggesting to me, which I'm embarrassed to say, but that's the truth. Uh, and I said, well, actually, there is a test now. It's, you know, fairly new, um, but it's, a, you know, it costs 300 bucks or whatever it was. And, and, and we can, we can figure out if you have the, the, the genetic sort of, uh, um, you know, code to, to be at high risk. And in fact, she was very, very low risk. It was close, close to zero as you can get. And so in her mind, she was like, you know what, that, that means that this is, this is all mechanical uh, for my specific case. And I promise you that I, I will not touch my eyes. And I have, she, we, we did like a two month, like a month long thing where she didn't touch them at all. And, um, and she was like, I can do this. I really want to move forward with this. I agree to, and I consent for, you know, uh, closer testing. We're going to do tomography like every six months for, you know, probably a couple of years. And if I had to do cross-linking in the future, I'll do that. I really want to roll the dice and do this. And I don't feel like it's rolling the dice because I had that negative Avigen test. And she and I felt very comfortable. She underwent PRK. She did wonderful. It changed her life. And she actually went on Facebook and did this big write-up about us and how we went the extra mile for her. And she felt so supported and she felt like all her questions were, were answered, et cetera. So it just ended up being a huge win uh, all around. So that was my initial foray into Avigen. That's an incredible result. And that's why it's so helpful. I had the same identical case, exactly the situation, same about same refractive error. She's 26. And that negative test made her feel much more comfortable about proceeding. She's still trying to schedule because of COVID. She, she slowed down a little bit, but, but she is planning to do it sometime in the next couple of months. But she felt much more comfortable knowing that her test was negative. That's awesome. Yeah, that, that case is really great, Blake. And I think you're right. It definitely makes us feel more comfortable when we have somebody who's a borderline case. In your case, it was borderline PRK or nothing. Um, my first patient is actually a little bit different, but kind of a similar decision tree where he has, it's like a 25, 24, 25-year-old low myope with some astigmatism and his 
myopia and his astigmatism are increasing and his scans are not completely normal. They're a little bit abnormal. Like there's a little bit of skew. His poster float looks okay. Um, his EpiMap, which we get anytime there's a patient who has suspicious corneas is also kind of equivocal. Um, and the thing that really did it for me and his balloon did not flag, which I thought was interesting because looking at his pentagams myself, I was like, oh, they're not entirely normal. And he has increasing myopia and astigmatism. Um, the thing that really solidified my interest in getting genetic testing for this patient was we actually have, you know, I started talking to him about eye rubbing and I started talking to him about keratoconus and the risk for progression and all that kind of stuff. And he was like, oh, I rub my eyes all the time, kind of like your patient. And he's actually from the big island. And I've talked to Bill about this. We have observed a significantly higher percentage of keratoconus from the big island than from any of the other islands. And I'm actually working with Avigen. We're doing a research project to characterize the genetics of the keratoconus on the big island to see if there's, you know, a different variant that's there. If it is, you know, the Simone or Pacific Islander or whatever ethnicity is out there, if it's already in their database or if it's not. So we've been, um, we've been working on getting that set up. And then I saw this patient and I'm like, man, you're like kind of borderline. And he really wanted LASIK and he really did not want PRK. And traditionally the way to figure it out would be, you know, repeat his refraction and his pentacams every three to six months for a while until you have stability and until you're really sure that he's not progressive, but he wants LASIK like yesterday and he really doesn't want to go through PRK healing time and all of that. And so I basically told him, I'm like, well, we can get this genetic test and it's not going to say you absolutely don't have it or that you absolutely do, but it's going to help stratify your risk. Um, and he had already been, you know, saving for refractive surgery so he could afford to do it. And interestingly, I've been talking about this test with patients who have keratoconus for months, ever since I found out about it. And I've been trying to get, you know, siblings or family members, people who are maybe kind of suspicious, just trying to get anybody who has actual keratoconus to get the test. But in my experience, I don't know if it's similar where you guys are, but I imagine this is kind of a worldwide problem. Um, oftentimes keratoconus patients um, just don't have the financial means to pay, you know, $300 even for a test that's not covered by their insurance. And so I have yet to find a patient who can afford to do it other than a refractive patient. Um, so I'm actually still waiting uh, we're going to do his test in like this week or next week, and then we'll get a result soon. So I'm curious to see what that shows. Absolutely. No, that sounds like a great patient to get a test on. I mean, I still even, I mean, for me, it's more of a rule into PRK versus not if you're suspicious. I just worry that, you know, the LASIK flap can sometimes weaken a cornea that is at mild risk, maybe from, not just from genes, but maybe from rubbing, who knows if they look at normal. It's just so hard to know. Um, LASIK, but PRK we know has so much lower risk for progressing progressing than LASIK. At least that's been my experience and what some data shows. So, um, I mean, you can definitely consider LASIK, but you're going to just have to follow them and they may need cross-linking, you know, as long as you follow them closely and they don't escape from you. That'll be the key. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely. Yeah. So, oh my God, these are such great topics. Oh, I was going to share one more thing. Do any of you guys have any corneal dystrophies in your practice? Like, like um, granular or lattice or Reese Bucklers. You ever guys ever see cases like that? Very rarely. They usually go to the, 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 the cornea specialist down the street for me. Even though I am the cornea specialist down the street, I don't really see much of that. And I've had a couple and, um, you know, it's more because they're coming in there thinking they may be eligible for refractive. And then you see that they have something wrong in their cornea. 
So just throwing out that this test is really great because it also tells you if they have a dystrophy. Um, so that does help overall if there's anything, even if it's subtle and because they're 20 and they don't have any obvious signs. It also helps rule that out for your patient, which is rare, but can be helpful. So Bill, I'm, I'm curious, I want to know like how you, how else you've incorporated this into your practice, because, you know, I'll paint the scene for you. I was at, uh, we were just what, at AAO in New Orleans, right? And I was at Brennan's uh, with the, with the Avigen people and uh, just having a nice leisurely lunch. I think I was on my uh, third mimosa at, at the time. And, uh, and I was letting them know, I was like, man, it's just, I was telling them that story I just told you guys. And, and I, I somewhat stupidly said, um, you know, so where else can I use this thing? And they looked at me, they were like, well, you should probably be testing every single child of every keratoconus patient that you have, like Meta just mentioned. And I was like, man, you're right. Why am I not doing that? Like, and I feel like I'm fairly tuned in. Like we have this podcast, like I go to meetings, like one fourth the amount of meetings that Bill goes to. And I feel like that's enough to like be somewhat plugged in. And I just feel like I'm ignorant to like all the different places I should be or could be using this because it's so true. I mean, I have many cones patients that are, you know, 35 to, to 55 years old. And I'm like, why, why am I not having your teenager in here? Because we know that's the time to intervene. So so but but in your practice in Miami, like, are you having similar issues where they they, they can't afford to do it? And how do you get around that? Is it, is it is it how you educate them on the importance or the value of it? Like, you know, where do you, where are you using this routinely? I'm sure it's more than just refractive surgery, PRK rule-ins. Right. So I think it's a combination of what you just mentioned. What, what I do is I like to get the family members in and we do an actual exam where we actually do the Pentacam and we check their vision. So if they're completely normal and let's say they're 14 years old, you know, again, of course we could definitely do the test to see if they have genetic risk factor, but their price jumps in. So it would be really for the patients that are kind of suspicious. So you, you run out on a 14, 15 year old family member of keratoconus and they have some suspicious signs, but they don't really qualify for keratoconus. That's the right patient because you know, you're suspicious. Should they come back in three months, six months, a year? You know, I'm not necessarily doing it on every, you know, recommend on every single family member because again, of cost issues, but just the patients that have some abnormal, abnormal findings, that's where I think it's helpful. Okay, so they have to have an abnormal tomography like, and when you said, what do you mean by that? Does their final D have to be off or is it more about seeing a posterior float that's awkward or weird or inferior steepening or what, like what, where, where's the, where's the nuance there with, with, okay, that's abnormal. Well, I mean, I think, you know, you, you guys are both quite experienced in keratoconus care. So it's just patient that, that is not quite normal. It could be that they have progressed, they go, oh my gosh, I have progressive uh, increase in my astigmatism over the last two years. You know, their glasses have gotten worse and worse and worse, or it's right. That makes you suspicious. So they went from one to three and a half doctors of astigmatism, that's gonna make you suspicious, even if the topography looks normal. Um, or maybe again, some some subtle changes in their in the in the symmetry of the cornea. So I think it's there's no exact answer because again, we're trying to catch things early and there's so many different presentations of keratoconus. I think for a lot of the family members, it, you know, at least just thinking about like overall cost to the system in addition to cost to the patient, just like Bill is saying, I feel like getting a family member in for an exam is covered by their insurance. It's, you know, it's less cost both to the patient and to the healthcare system overall to check a refraction, do a slit lamp exam, get some scans on them and at least establish a baseline. And so even though I've, like I say, oh yeah, I've talked to every patient about it and encouraged them to get testing, like primarily I'm talking to them, educating them that, you know, this can run in the family. Do you have other people in the family that have glasses or contacts, have astigmatism, are they eye rubbers? Do you have kids? Are your kids rubbing their eyes? And I'm, you know, constantly trying to educate them on that and educate them to 
talk to the people around them, um, especially the, my patients that are coming from the big island. Like I was saying, it's crazy. Like we have 10 times the number of patients coming from there than we do from Oahu and they're like 10% of the population or something. So they're way disproportionately represented. And so um, there's all kinds of things that we're doing with, you know, a school screening program that we've started or we're starting next year to try to identify these patients earlier um, on the outer islands. And I think at the very minimum, I try to get them to go in and see their optometrist and get a baseline exam. If they're on an outer island and they can't get a pentacam, then at least they can get a refraction. And then sometime I tell them, oh yeah, just bring, you know, bring your family members to, or some family member of yours, whoever you're worried about to your next appointment and we can scan your eyes. And just like Bill is saying, you know, thankfully all of those patients so far, the family members, I haven't really caught anybody that has anything, but I think if I were to have, you know, a patient that looked suspicious. It's nice to know that I have this tool at my disposal and not just the normal of, oh, let's just watch and wait and see if you're going to get worse or not. So it's really nice that we don't just have to slowly watch them lose vision. We can actually intervene earlier. Um, it'll be really interesting too, whether we can use genetic testing as something that we can submit to insurance to get cross-linking covered because right now, I mean, it's so frustrating that we have to wait just for progression for patients. So I don't know. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, if that's something that they're even working on getting that worked in for insurance purposes it's it's not on the label so they will not want to do that because they, they would prefer not to insurance prefer not to pay as like to prove that oh this patient is high risk for keratoconus and they have strong genetics for it and an abnormal topography do we have to wait for that topography to get work that i mean i know it's starting right. to can't really talk. Right. I mean, I think the issue is that insurance companies prefer not to pay for cross-linking. So they're not going to make it more easier for, for patients to get this procedure. So they're going to, they're going to just follow the label exactly. And that's what the label says. So that's what they're following. But we didn't, they didn't look at genetic testing at the time of the FDA clinical trial in 2008. So it's not part of it. So I don't expect the insurances to really change. I, we could be pleasantly surprised, but I don't expect that. Bill, what about so? So I just got um, I just got glycoslicking whenever glucose you know uh, bottomed, and I'm guessing that was probably similar for uh, many many providers around the country that have been on the fence. Um, so I'm relatively new to this. Um, I'm just kind of getting to that point where those patients are now a year out. My, my original you know patients are crosslinked, and they're coming in wanting PRK. So what are your what are your thoughts about that? You know. Um, I, I know that some people, you know, in Europe are do, do it at the same time, you know, sequentially, but, you know, my, my thought was to wait a solid year and just kind of look at the, the image maps. What are sort of, what are some of your cutoffs for, you know, people that you would consider doing PRK and how do you, how do you kind of decide whether, yes, this is someone you will do PRK on a year later after cross-linking versus, oh, you know what, I better not touch this one. They're not a candidate for a corneal-based procedure. Blake, you asked a fantastic question. Well, first, you probably noticed that many of our patients have a little better shape to their cornea. They're a little flatter, and hopefully the shape has improved a little bit. Uh, for, for Since I have a Visix eye design system, I need patients to be 20, 25 or better as a minimum. Like I, if I had someone who's 20, 40, the eye design system won't improve the corneal shape enough, so they still have reduced best corrective visual acuity, so I'm not solving that much. So for that's my first cutoff is I like to treat patients only that are 20, 25 or better. If you have the contour of the Alcon system, that's just topo guided. I know that a number of people across uh, internationally um, and in the U.S., Mark Lobanoff, Carl Sonsave, and others are doing contour. 
and they're doing more irregular shaped corneas. In fact, they did send someone from Miami all the way up to Mark Lobanoff a couple of days ago. Well, he went a few weeks ago and just had his treatment this week. Mark sent me uh, some pictures with a patient happy. We don't know the result yet. He just had it this week, but they can treat some irregular corneas. Um, so, but for me, the first thing is they have to have good visual acuity. So these are the mild cases you're crossing because you identify them um, and they're, they're seeing well. And then typically I like patients that have low refractive errors that, you know, minus one to minus four, minus five, um, and have reasonably uh, good corneal thickness. Um, and we'll do, uh, I know I design PRK and they can do quite well. Um, again, it's, it's just a very tiny subset of my patients that have uh, keratoconus, but um, those are patients that typically come in, they wanted, um, they wanted laser vision correction, they didn't qualify because we identified mild keratoconus at the beginning, and we did crossing you first and then PRK. I'm not a big fan of combining, just to remind you that in Europe, they have different systems, so they can do a short burst of, of a high energy, low time frame cross-linking, which we don't have in the US, and that's how they avoid some haze. But if you're trying to do a 20, 30 minute cross-linking after PRK, you're gonna get high degrees of haze. So it's not really an option for simultaneous or same day uh, PRK combined with crosslinking. You know, I would add to that. I think in, in my experience, I feel like, you know, I've been crosslinking since I've been in practice and I'm always kind of looking for that patient that has mild enough keratoconus that we can do crosslinking and then a year or two out, you could consider, you know, once their cornea has stabilized and, um, and their topographies are stable, then you could consider doing PRK. Um, Bill has shown some really great data that, you know, people can continue to have flattening and changes in their corneal shape up to like seven years, I think, if I'm not mistaken. And so I, you know, just like arbitrarily picking a year, I feel like is probably fair for most people, but may not be true stability for everyone. Um, and unfortunately, in my experience, it's been that most of the patients that are being referred in for cross-linking are being referred in at a moderate or late advanced stage of keratoconus. And they're so far beyond something that we could correct with a low amount of PRK. Um, and so it's just, it's been really hard to find somebody who would actually have best corrected acuity that would do well. And I'm hoping that that's something that, you know, as we get farther along in this and there's more awareness in the optometric community, especially about cross-linking, then we'll catch patients earlier. We'll be doing cross-linking earlier on patients. And then we'll have more people who have mild disease that are now candidates for some sort of refractive procedure. I had the other, um, refractive procedure that I feel like not a lot of people talk about um, is ICLs. And I had a great case of a super nice guy who's um, had cross-linking already and was like a year or two out when I first met him. Um, and he was, you know, a very high myope with high amounts of astigmatism. Um, and I kind of talked to him about expectations and Basically, I sat at the forefront myself and with my optometrist across so many different methods, contact lens over refraction and regular refraction, maxing out his refraction with four diopters of sill because I wanted to see what was his spectacle best corrected acuity with four diopters of cylinder, even though he had like six diopters if you really did a true manifest. But when you maxed out the sill, he could still get to like 2030 um, and he was happy with that. He was like, I just want to be able to see my kids and play with my kids without having to put contacts in my eyes. And I don't need to see 2020. I know the quality vision is not going to be as good, but if this is as good as it gets, I'm happy with this. And I put Torque ICLs in both eyes and he ended up like 2025 and actually better than I had got on, um, on refraction. And so I feel like that's 
obviously a super safe option for these people because you're not touching their cornea. So if they're regular enough that you can refract them and at least reduce some of their astigmatism and myopia to get them functional vision, then I think that's a really great option now that we have, you know, a torque ICL as well. That's a great case. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. Yes, I'm sure, I'm not sure if Blake have used NICLs as well, but I have one patient I also treated. Again, you gotta find patients that have good best corrective visual acuity, at least in my opinion, and they can be really happy because of the price of the ICL. You wanna have patients that have you know, expect a good outcome. And like you noted, they seem even better than you would expect once they have the actual procedure. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a great point. And I think we're gonna get more into uh, ICL in our next uh, episode as well, which is cool. Couldn't agree more, uh, Netta, on, on, on the optometric community doing doing more to, 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 to gauge this. I have to give a shout out to Glaucos because they're actually partnering with a lot of ODs to give them, um, you know, very, very relatively inexpensive topographies. It's crazy how many opt optometrists, you know, do not have a topography and they'll refract people and they can't quite get into 2020, maybe they're 2025 is 2030 ish. And they just give them glasses and, and it's just, they don't, they don't have a topo to even look at that. And I think of how many people we can get to earlier if they just had that. So um, shout out to Glaucos for that program and getting uh, topographies more in the hands of, of ODs. You know, as we're wrapping up, just the last thing I wanted to kind of mention, um, Netta, we've talked about um, EpiOn um, and sort of that coming down the pike. Um, you know, I've had some issues with, uh, you know, infections after EpiOff. That's a known complication of cross-linking. Bill, I thought that maybe you could kind of talk about um, either how to, how, you know, what's the safest way to, to reduce risk of infection with EpiOff and maybe a word about EpiOn uh, and when that may come. Of course. Well, first of all, you know, EpiOff is what we have FDA approved here in the United States. It, it is a very safe and effective treatment. Um, and it's really important that patients are identified and, and they get EpiOff cross-linking if they're candidates. And they're, and they're um, you know, it's just been a great uh, technology, which you guys all agree. The key is prevention of, of complications. And one is infection. And so one thing to consider is that the source, just like in cataract surgery, the source of infection is usually from the patient's own flora. So you can do things like use hypochlorous acid spray on the eyelids and lashes preoperatively to reduce the amount of bacteria that are present. And that should reduce the amount of bacteria that put, may put the patient at risk. I know many, many doctors, when we do epi off, we want to use a bandage contact lens. It does make the patient feel more comfortable. So you can weigh the pluses and minuses of that. I know some doctors will go even without it, but it's really painful for the patient. Uh, with it, uh, it reduces pain, but there's a little more increase of infection from my understanding. Um, I'm not sure if any studies have been done. So uh, the other thing I do that's uh, probably a little different is I use, I think there's too many holes in our in our antibiotics that are commercially available. So I like to use two antibiotics when I'm doing any type of EpiOff procedure. So I use both a uh, polytrim, for example, and moxie, like two separate types of antibiotics to get a little more coverage uh, for the patient. Again, no studies. I just want to make sure I'm not missing um, anything. I do this for my PRK patients as well. So those are kind of my, uh, what I've been doing to try to reduce the risk of infection for my patients um, overall. And what about EpiOn, Bill? When's that coming? Well, uh, Glaucos at, um, has done a great job. I think they've, uh, you know, they advanced through the FDA pipeline, a, uh, a, a clinical trial that's already uh, completed enrollment. And I know they're not analyzing the data. They've done the first data analysis. As with anything that's uh, going through FDA approval, they have to, uh, you know, it takes a little while, but hopefully that'll become available to us. Um, Epion, uh, if you think about it, um, there's no other treatment that I can think of uh, eye drop treatment where you have to take off the epithelium then cross-linking. So it makes sense that if we just change, if they updated the formulation, which is what the Glaucos version has done and allows the, the riboflavin to penetrate through intact epithelium, which is certainly possible, um, and then we can get very nice results with cross-linking. 
and avoid the risks that are that are present with epiophy and the risks are low but real. So we can just lower the risk profile. And let's say it turns out that it's only 80% is effective with one treatment. You could always do more than one treatment. There's nothing that says that um, only one treatment should be done. And if it turns out that you can do two epions in a small subset of patients versus and, low, and eliminate the risk of infection, that may be worth it for many patients and many physicians. I'm hoping that the that the efficacy rate will be close to epioff so that there won't be, won't be much of a difference, but we'll have to see with more data. Those are really, really great pearls, Bill. Um, you've been doing cross-thinking way longer than we have. So I'm curious, I mean, you know, I've read the FDA studies and I know in the literature what the success rate of epioff is. Um, but I'm just curious, since you've been following these patients much longer than we have after cross-linking, how often in your hands are you needing to do a second cross-linking for an epi-off or an epi-on patient? Absolutely. Well, I did, uh, from my FDA clinical trial from 2008, I did see a patient come back um, recently that I had to, uh, I did cro- uh, do repeat cross-linking this year in one of the patients that was enrolled. So it can occur even later. Um, that's why they need to, need to keep following our patients. And with epi-on, as part of the clinical trial uh, through CXLO, and in that study, it's about a 1% risk of needing second treatments um, so far. Um, that number could grow over many years. We'll have to keep watching our patients, but so far it's been about the 1% uh, range. Um, I think with EpiOff, from looking at the, uh, the international literature, it's also in the 1% to 2% range. Some studies say 3%, but I think 1% to 2% at least. So that means we just have to follow patients over time because... Um, they can come back five years later and have a little bit of a change and repeat treatment super simple to perform and it's quite effective. I found that when you do that second treatment, not only do you stabilize them, often there's even more improvement in coronal shape. So even, let's say a patient was just drifting over time and he's, they're just a little bit worse to go, okay, let's do a second treatment. When you do that second treatment or like a booster, all of a sudden they get really nice improvement in the coronal shape as you follow them further along. So second treatments are, are excellent and they should be uh, you know, offered one if you do identify a patient has progressed a little bit. Um, and obviously just to point out two more things that make sure they actually have progressed. Like I won't, if someone's a little bit worse when they come back a year later, maybe it's because their eyes are a little dry. Maybe they wore the contact lens that day. So I like to get another, I haven't come back another month or two later, optimize the ocular surface and make sure it wasn't just an aberrant reading that they truly are progressing. Um, and it can take a little while to figure that out. Wonderful pearls, Bill. This has been a great discussion. I think we, we learned a lot about Avigen and where to, where to place it in our practice and you know, how, to, how do we meet the refractive goals of our patients after they are treated with, with cross-linking and um, as well as what's coming down the pike with, with future technologies. So I uh, just want to thank my co-host Netta and also you, Bill, for coming on the show. And uh, we really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Until next time, this has been another episode of Ophthalmology Off the Grid. Thank you to Dr. Bill Trattler for joining us in this episode of Ophthalmology Off the Grid. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in. This has been Ophthalmology Off the Grid. Until next time.